welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Treatment Update on Liver Cancer. It's a very important topic. It's one that we don't get to present on often enough, so you're going to hear about a lot of the updates that have occurred in this field. Uh, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as liver cancer organizations. And I also want to say that today's program is supported by Exelexis, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, there are lots of you on the call today. We have over 150 participants on the call today. Um, you come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. But we also have international participants from a number of countries, from Canada, Egypt, India, Japan, and Russia. So this is a bit of a global call as well. Clearly a lot of interest in this topic and on this type of cancer. Now we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Amart Katat. Dr. Katat is professor and director the Pathocellular Carcinoma Program, co-director, MD Anderson, HCC4, editor-in-chief, journal of Pathocellular Carcinoma, Department of Gastrointestinal Medical Oncology, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Kassad will be pre presenting an overview of liver cancer in the context of COVID-19, current standard of care, and new treatment approaches. It really is my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kassab. Thank you, Carolyn and team. And uh, it's my pleasure to come back uh, to the wonderful program here where we can share our thoughts and ideas with our patients uh, from all over the world. So um, the first topic that I'm going to um, discuss today is overview of liver cancer. And I'm going to also allude to the current uh, global um, crisis, how can we manage our patients and our uh, beloved ones, um, get them through this tough time. So when it comes to um, liver cancer, the first question we always ask is, do we have the two disease states where we have underlying liver disease, um, namely um, cirrhosis or scarring tissue in the liver, um, a lot of times this um, this is a consequence of either hepatitis B or C, depending on the um, um, uh, geographic location in Asia. For example, it's mainly hepatitis B, while in Egypt it's C in the U.S. One-third of the patients would have hepatitis C and about 10-15% hepatitis B, and the rest would have fatty liver um, or um, what we call um, um, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH, if you have heard the word before. So um, no matter um, what the underlying liver disease is, the uh, usual outcome is scarring tissue of the liver and then eventually um, liver cancer. So that's why most of our patients suffer from this um, two disease state which is basically um, um, underlying liver disease in addition to the tumor. So the first question we ask is um, if the liver functions are maintained for active therapy. Um, because some patients, unfortunately, if um, their liver um, has got very advanced cirrhosis, they have jaundice in their eyes, and um, slowed in their abdomen, it is risky to entertain therapy at that point. Um, however, uh, those patients who are in good shape to receive therapy, um, their liver functions are maintained. Then the next question is, are we up against localized tumors or metastatic tumors? So for uh, localized tumors, the second question we ask, are we amenable for resection or um, um, cutting out the tumor by surgery? And that's in patients who have very good liver condition, no underlying cirrhosis to preclude surgery. Those patients who have advanced cutting tissue in their liver and the tumors are still small, 
one tumor less than 5 centimeters or 3 less than 3 centimeters, then we can entertain the liver transplant option, which takes a little time depending on where you live, from, you know, 6 months to a year, even longer um, uh, in some states or some countries. Um, um, and that's why in the meantime, while, while we are waiting for the liver transplant, we do localized therapy to prevent the tumor from growing. Um, so those patients who uh, have localized liver tumors in the liver and are not amenable for either um, surgical resection or liver transplant, they um, are treated with localized therapies. And by that I mean either um, burning the tumor if it is very small, less than 3 centimeters, or we can do chemoembolization, which is basically a catheter we put through the groin, like having a heart cat. We go inside the liver itself uh, through the hepatic, the, the artery supplying the um, tumor, and then inject chemotherapy directly inside the tumor, or uh, radiation beads inside of the tumor we call ECM90. Um, so these are the localized therapy options for those patients with uh, localized tumors that are inside of the liver, did not spread out, and yet they are not candidates for surgical resection or liver transplant. Or even if they are transplant candidates, but they are awaiting on the list until they, um, uh, um, they get their liver transplant. Um, the uh, next category is this, these, these patients with metastatic disease. The tumor uh, spread out um, outside the liver or invaded already the portal veins. So it's not amenable for any surgical option and localized therapies are, are, are not uh, optimal alone. So in these cases, we go for what we call systemic therapy, which is either medication by mouth or, or vein. Um, and we're going to talk about this um, uh, when we get to current standard of care. So this is the outline of how we manage our patients in clinic. First question is, are they in, are they in good shape to receive therapy? Do they have localized tumors in the liver? or it's already metastatic or invading through these portal veins, and if they have localized um, disease, that's the best outcome. They can go for surgery or transplant or localized therapy. If they have metastatic or uh, invasion into portal veins, then we go for systemic therapies, and we're going to talk about this in detail. Now, I want to spend a couple of minutes um, uh, um, addressing the um, current uh, pandemic of the COVID-19. How did that affect our patients? and uh, the way we manage them in clinic. So the basic concept here is we're trying to protect our patients and minimize their visitation to any hospital setting or clinical setting where um, they are exposed to other sick patients because, of course, any cancer patients will have lower immunity than usual and the treatments we give them could also affect their immune system in some cases. So that's the whole concept is how we minimize, how can, can we minimize their uh, travel back and forth to our hospital high-risk setting. So the question comes along um, if they are amenable for surgical resection, um, should we delay surgery? Or if they are amenable for localized therapy, burning or the catheter treatment, do we, do we delay that? If it's safe to do so, and if they are on systemic therapy, can we skip a treatment cycle or skip a visit? or delay staging. So these are very, very relevant questions and I will encourage you to discuss it with your um, treating physician because um, he or she would be the best to know what kind of biology are you up against. If your tumor has been indolent and slowly growing and you are handling this for a while, then they can really start doing video visits, for example, and telemedicine where they can minimize your travel and can, uh, can talk to you in, um, uh, through a, um, a, a video visit, for example. Um, it's tougher discussion if the patient is amenable for surgery or localized therapy. And here, you really have to weigh risk-benefit ratio. If the hospital where you are being treated uh, has got a high-risk population, then it's better to delay a little bit. And there are some studies that actually showed that um, coming from Europe, a study published a couple of years ago uh, with over 100 patients that the um, delay up to 12 weeks of surgery 
did not affect their patient population. So again, all of this is going to depend on your personal discussion with your own physician to discuss the pros and cons of these approaches. But it's just um, um, something to consider, weighing the risk-benefit ratio and uh, taking the advantage of the telemedicine and video physics and so on. Um, next, I'm going to be talking about the current standard of care here. We alluded to um, surgical approaches, localized therapies. I'm going to spend a couple of minutes talking about the um, systemic therapy approaches. So um, a couple of years ago, even a year ago, we didn't have many options um, such as what we have currently. So we have um, six options to pick and choose from. Um, just a couple, uh, a couple of months ago, um, a major study with immunotherapy and another drug, targeted therapy drug, um, showed positive results and uh, they are added now to the guidelines for treatment. Um, a drug called Avastin and another drug called Cocentric, which both of them are um, a mix of immunotherapy and a drug that targets the blood vessels supplying the tumors. So this is going to be the standard of care in HCC in liver cancer. Both of them are IV once every three weeks, um, much more tolerable than the old drugs. Uh, and um, other options include a drug called Nexovar, another drug called Zendina. So these are oral drugs. So these three options are for uh, frontline, we call we call it frontline uh, therapies for patients with metastatic disease or uh, vascular invasion into portal veins. So they can go on either um, two oral drugs, one, one at a time, or the two IV drugs, both taken together um, every three weeks. And if they progress on the front line, we have similar drugs in the second line, including oral drugs um, uh, that we give also one at a time, and we have um, two of those and also another IV drug that we get um, and another um, IV drug which is immunotherapy that is still under you know guidelines for peripheral carcinoma in patients who never received immunotherapy. So um, so we can say that we have much better um, um, a strategy now than we had even a year ago and um, um, whether or not you are a candidate for any of them would really depend on um, your liver function status, uh, your overall clinical condition, uh, the tumor status, so it's really a discussion that you also uh, need to have with your treating physician and it's always okay to search up these things and uh, come up with some questions when you are discussing these issues with your physician. Last point I want to um, um, discuss is new treatment approaches. So uh, Dr. Harding is going to talk about, you know, this in detail in terms of clinical trial strategies and so on. So I'm just going to touch on this very briefly and say that um, the new treatment approaches are uh, focusing on combining localized therapies such as, you know, once we talked about the burning or ablation and the catheter treatment with systemic therapy, those drugs I discussed uh, by mouth or vein. And also looking into uh, new approaches of uh, doing immunotherapy either before surgery or after surgery to try to minimize the recurrence after surgical resection in those patients who um, end up getting surgery done, their tumor is gone, but they are still at risk for the tumor coming back. So these are some of the new treatment approaches, but all of them are still under investigation, and um, Dr. Harding is going to talk about this in detail. So that would conclude my um, part, and um, um, I would be more than happy after we're done with our um, talks to um, hear any questions from your end. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kassab. That was really outstanding, and we're set the stage for today's program. A lot of information for people. And uh, a lot of very, very important information um, in the context of COVID-19 as well, but also information about new treatments that always people are interested to hear about. So very excellent. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. James Harding. And Dr. Harding is assistant attending, gastrointestinal oncology service, developmental therapeutic center, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Harding is going to be addressing clinical trials updates, how research increases your treatment options, managing symptoms, side effects, and pain in the context of COVID-19, 
Recommendations for preparing for telehealth appointments, including communicating with the healthcare team about your quality of life and financial concerns. It's really my great pleasure to this program only to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Harvey. Uh, thank you very much, uh, and uh, thank you for all of the speakers today uh, for, um, for this interesting program. Uh, so when we think about clinical trials, uh, clinical trials are really investigations where uh, physician scientists and physicians are trying to establish new therapies for cancer. Um, and uh, we can divide clinical trials into two major blocks, non-therapeutic clinical trials and therapeutic clinical trials. So a non-therapeutic clinical trial uh, may be a clinical trial where uh, physicians are trying to learn more about liver cancer or cirrhosis, uh, and that might include uh, surveys uh, with um, uh, questions about the disease and risk factors for you or a loved one. Uh, that might include taking samples from uh, the blood, the urine, or the tumor to try to understand what causes liver cancer to grow uh, and, and what uh, uh, ways we can potentially use to block liver cancer. These studies are uh, really low risk for patients to participate in, and, you know, if you're at an academic center or a community academic center, you may be asked about participation in a non-therapeutic clinical study, and this is sort of something to consider. Uh, therapeutic clinical studies are the way we find that new drugs are safe, effective, uh, and ultimately how they become the standard of care. Uh, and generally, we consider clinical trials in phases. So a phase one clinical trial is, is typically the first time we're testing a, uh, a drug or treatment modality in a patient with cancer, specifically in, in this context, a patient with liver cancer. Uh, and right now across the world, there are many phase one clinical studies that are geared at, at looking at how safe um, and how is the best way to apply the therapies for liver cancer. Uh, and this really includes vaccination studies, uh, T-cell-based therapies, new immune therapies, and new combination therapies. A phase two study um, is uh, once now a phase one has been conducted, we know a treatment is safe, we know a treatment may have some level of activity. Now we want to try to define better how much anti-cancer therapy uh, someone gets. And here, uh, generally most patients um, will be getting a, a, a treatment on this arm, and, uh, and this is really the preliminary step that's required before remove, moving into what's called phase three. So phase three is when you take um, uh, your new therapy and compare it to the old therapy. So as Dr. Kassab mentioned, uh, he spoke about serafinib or Nexavar. This had been the standard of care for liver cancer for a decade until the new drugs, lenvacinib uh, and uh, the IV combination, atezolizumab uh, with bevacizumab, uh, displaced this as, as a frontline standard of care through a phase three study. So in these studies, typically um, a, a proportion of patients will get the standard and another proportion will get what we consider, you know, to be the, the new contender. And so for right now in liver cancer, there are a number of phase threes that have recently been completed uh, and we're waiting the data for that. And so Dr. Katzab mentioned that what we're very interested in is combining therapies, um, uh, therapies that uh, wake up the immune system, but also uh, in combination with, with um, anti-angiogenics, things that will, may affect the tumor. So, for example, uh, LEAP-02 is a phase three study that is looking at the combination of pembrolizumab with lenvacinib versus uh, the standard of care serafinib. Uh, there's the Cosmic 312 study, which is looking at a drug called tabozantinib, which is an anti-angiogenic or TKI, tyrosine kinase inhibitor, uh, with the drug atezolizumab and comparing that to serafinib. Uh, there are also phase three studies that are looking at combination immunotherapies. Um, 
And so um, uh, this is blocking multiple pathways in, uh, in the cancer immune cycle. Uh, and an example of a study like this is the Himalaya study, which was looking at uh, the drug Develimab with Tremulumab uh, versus Develimab versus Serafinib. Uh, and another major study is the Checkmate 9DW study, which is looking at a similar combination of a drug combination called Ipinevo, uh, Ipilumumab and Nivolumab versus uh, a frontline pill-based therapy. So these are phase threes for patients that have, uh, are, are on systemic therapy that we're waiting for results in their completion to help define new therapies um, uh, uh, for patients with advanced uh, liver cancer. Phase threes and twos are also in planning for these combinations at earlier stages of disease, so with embolization, as Dr. Kassab had mentioned. Uh, we are also seeing this um, um, as potential adjuvant therapy, so after surgery, uh, to see if giving an immune therapy or an immune therapy combination versus observation would be better. Uh, and so um, those are ongoing, and, and so it's a really, uh, I think, a very active time for clinical trials for liver cancer. I will say, uh, just to mention, that the COVID-19 crisis um, has certainly, uh, I think, impacted some clinical trial-based research, uh, and so if you or a loved one is considering a clinical trial, it would be important to speak with uh, uh, one of the investigators at that site to make sure there are no changes to the clinical trial. Uh, and so that's clinical trial research in a nutshell for liver cancer. Uh, speaking of symptom management, uh, you know, symptoms, the goal of all medical oncology is really to control that liver cancer, to cure liver cancer um, um, uh, with uh, uh, an intact quality of life. People want to have an excellent quality of life and they want symptoms uh, either from the cancer or from their therapy to be reduced. So it's very important when you speak with your provider to really talk about the symptoms that are bothering you. And you know, sometimes it, it's, it's hard to tease out um, what is the cause of a patient's symptoms. So, for example, although the drugs that we've talked about are, are, are quite tolerable, uh, they, they do have symptoms that need to be watched for. So, for example, immune-based treatments may, may wake the, the immune system up for, for to fight cancer, but may also wake the immune system up uh, such that the immune system may attack a normal part of the body. And so, you know, we have observed in patients undergoing immunotherapy a variety of side effects, uh, some which are clear, like, you know, diarrhea, uh, or um, um, uh, uh, um, liver function abnormalities that can be seen on laboratories, some which are very subtle that affect, you know, occur within the endocrine system. And so really any complaint on therapy for immunotherapies will need to be elicited and followed. For the pill-based treatments that are called tyrosine kinase inhibitors, you know, so these often can cause a rise in blood pressure or... Um, reddening of the hands and feet, and, and for each of these, medications may be applied to reduce those symptoms. Of course, the disease has symptoms as well, and, and, and this could include um, aspects of both the cancer and or cirrhosis, and that's why we like to manage patients with the consultation of a hepatologist. Uh, so, for example, sometimes people will develop swelling in the abdominal cavity or ascites. This is fluid as a result of cirrhosis, and and we can use medications like diuretics to, you know, to reduce that fluid. Sometimes we can drain that fluid out. Um, other times, cancer may be associated with pain, and thus we have supportive medicine services that really can assist us uh, and help manage pain and symptoms uh, related to disease. Um, I will say that in the era of COVID-19, one thing that we're going to be seeing a lot more of uh, is telemedicine or telehealth. Uh, this is when um, a patient may interact with their healthcare provider by phone, uh, but ideally phone and video link. Uh, and in this context, 
you know, we are able to assess symptoms uh, as well as to do some portions of the physical examination. Uh, and so in that era, I've actually found some aspects of telemedicine can be quite helpful, particularly related to symptom management. Um, uh, because when you're having that symptom, you can be assessed in, in more real time and in the context of your house, which, which may help us. And so, um, I, I, I do feel that we will still need to see patients in person, but I think, um, as we move forward, there may be times where telemedicine would be the best possible choice uh, for a patient, um, uh, depending on the clinical situation uh, and a, a rapid way that we might ensure um, uh, wellness. And, and to that end, if you are a patient and you, you do um, interact frequently with a healthcare system, you know, it, it would be useful to investigate, you know, how your um, hospital system does telemedicine and what devices you may have to help um, do that because um, it, speaking over the phone is one aspect, but if we can see in the video, that, that can be quite helpful. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see more clinical research that evaluates the effectiveness of telemedicine as well um, as, um, uh, um, you know, how to implement this better to patient care. Uh, and I think I have only two minutes, and I will just mention, or less than a minute, um, you know, financial health is also a, an important aspect of cancer treatment. It can be exceedingly expensive, um, and, and so um, many major cancer centers have programs designed to identify, uh, you know, if your insurance coverage is appropriate, but also may have additional um, assets through um, uh, compassionate use of medications with a, a particular pharmaceutical company, philanthropic support, as well as other resources uh, related to travel and whatnot. And so, you know, it's expected that you ask about financial health related to cancer treatment, and most centers have that, and I should encourage you to do that to enhance the quality of your care. Providers may not always have the right answer because we don't focus on that as much. However, we know the people at our specific institutions that can help with that issue. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, we're not aware of that issue unless it's brought to our attention. So I think that sums up trials, symptoms, uh, telehealth, uh, and, and fin some financial costs. And I hope to be able to talk more about this um, at the end of the session. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Harding. That was an excellent presentation. Also, uh, very well put together and very, very um, thoughtful and comprehensive. And also, you're stressing at the end the importance of really letting your healthcare team know if you have any concerns or problems, including financial concerns, which I think people have always thought they couldn't mention to their doctor. And Dr. Harding is saying it's okay to tell. Dr. Harding, I tell your doctor about this because remember your healthcare team includes many different people who actually can assist you with this. So they can bring in a bunch of people that can help you. Um, so please don't try to do that alone. And um, we recognize that these are hard times for everybody. So please do do use. Since you're seeing with your doctor, you want to be sure. We did a program the other day, and I think um, the tagline was, "If you see something, say something. If you feel something, say something." And I think that applies to your communication with your healthcare team. But please definitely communicate with them. And I think Dr. Harding has made an excellent appeal for that to all of you. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Burden. Ms. Burden is an oncology dietitian with the Michael E. Spakey VA Medical Center. And she will be discussing, discussing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. And it's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Burden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Um, nutrition and hydration are essential in your tolerance to treatment and maintaining your quality of life. During your treatment, um, your diet may be modified. Um, everybody's journey through treatment is different, and so um, some of the things that are modified in your diet may be different from a friend or a family member who's gone through a similar a similar treatment process. Um, common side effects that we see in patients undergoing treatment for liver cancer 
are things such as decrease in appetite, nausea, early satiety, which is filling full quickly, vomiting, constipation, and weight loss. Um, there are others. Those are just some of the ones that we, we see most frequently. Um, a dietitian can really help provide you individual calorie and protein goals as well as fluid goals um, and information on your diet modification. When you're feeling a change come on or you're noticing a trend or something that's different, please communicate with your healthcare team sooner rather than later. Um, oftentimes your treatment can uh, change the way you tolerate your diet. And if we can get on that more quickly, then we can get you feeling better more quickly and tolerating um, your diet better. So some things that you want to just be mindful of is weight loss is something that we focus a lot on during cancer treatment for all different cancers. However, when you're going through treatment for liver cancer, um, we can notice some changes physically that are a little bit more unique to the liver cancer itself. So when we see wasting or muscle loss or weight loss, oftentimes what you'll notice is in the face, in the upper chest region, shoulder region, um, you may see drastic weight changes and muscle loss. And then there might be more of an abdominal, an increase in abdominal girth and then some weight loss in the lower extremities. And so this can be brought on um, by not getting enough calories and protein in. Your liver is um, constantly trying to heal itself through all treatment, and protein is the cornerstone for that healing. However, if you don't get enough calories in, then even if you eat your pro enough protein, you think you're eating enough protein, you'll still have weight loss. So you still have to have enough energy to feed your total body with part of that energy coming from protein. Um, oftentimes I hear patients, you know, they'll come in and say, oh, I've got weight to lose. I, it's okay, I've lost 10 pounds. And what I want to stress to you today is the weight loss you experience during cancer treatment is different than when you're not going through cancer treatment and you're losing weight. Um, Weight loss during cancer treatment can be more of a muscle weight loss and eventually some fat weight loss. But the challenge with that is when you lose muscle, you may become fatigued more quickly. Our muscle is part of our breathing system. It's part of our eating system, our chewing system, picking things up, bending over, and just walking. So our muscles are all over our body, and um, while your body is being challenged and needing more nutrition, it's not um, just one area that you would lose muscle. It would come from all over your body. So this is an important thing to remember. Weight loss is something we want to avoid. Talking with your healthcare team about challenges you're experiencing that are interfering with your eating are essential, and please do that very soon, as soon as you see there's a change going on. Um, a couple of suggestions, if you're feeling full quickly or you're just not able to eat as much at one time, a common recommendation is we encourage patients just to eat small meals throughout the day. And um, each time you eat, include something that's a good protein source, such as fish, peanut butter, eggs, cottage cheese, yogurt, those are just some examples. Um, and eating several times throughout the day can help you get more calories in without feeling uncomfortable. There are some products on the market that we can use to fortify your diet as well. So different protein powders um, for patients who follow a, a specific diet, maybe you're more vegetarian or vegan. Um, there are protein sources out there for you um, and things that you can add to your diet, pea protein, a lot of different protein sources. So talk with your dietitian about how you can fortify or increase that nutrition currency in your food. Um, some foods may cause you to feel more uncomfortable. Things that can cause a lot of gas and fullness are foods that are greasy and high in fat. And oftentimes, I know this is going to seem a little strange to hear, but our raw fruits and raw vegetables. We may just modify some of these things and how you're consuming them 
whether it be really well cooked or if it's in a juice instead of in a whole form so you can still get some of those antioxidants and, and get that nourishment in. So we can manipulate things so that you can still have a very helpful balanced diet. Um, there are medications that help with side effects. Talk with your healthcare team. Uh, take medications as directed. It will really make a difference in helping to con um, control your side effects. Hydration is something that is very important. It's always important during cancer treatment, especially when your appetite is less and you're feeling full quickly. Oftentimes we focus on the food, which is very important. However, fluid can also fill you up. So when you're not eating, drinking is a great way um, to get it in between meals so you, when you are eating, you're filling up on food and not so much the fluid. Again, um, there are ways to modify um, your foods and even your fluids with some of those protein powders and other modulars that are available. Um, so talking with your dietitian can be really helpful. Most folks need about um, 8 to 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Um, if you become dehydrated, some symptoms can be headache, nausea, constipation, feeling dizzy and unsteady. So um, hydration is very important. In closing, you know, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to you. And so please reach out to them. And um, with that, I'm going to close and hand the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, well, thank you so much, Diana. That was really superb and uh, um, really excellent, excellent presentation as always. And lots of good tips in terms of both food and hydration that people should follow. So I know there are always questions in the Q&A about food. I know that. Um, and I'm going to say a few words about the service of cancer care that you can access, and then we're going to take questions. So um, Norma will explain to that group for questions in about two minutes. I'm just going to cover a few things. I'm Carolyn Metzner. I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. I am director of education training here, and I want to give you an overview of the three services you can access from Cancer Care. And um, they, uh, they are both practical, financial, and also a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers. You could call it counseling, a chance to talk with someone about your concerns and your, and your worries. Um, and we do this, um, most people call us on the phone or they visit our website. And um, I should say that within two days of the program, you'll be getting an evaluation of the program. It's not just an evaluation. We do like to get your feedback, of course. But it also will include any resource that we mention. So I'll be, I'll be giving you, and I think it's on all the materials that you've gotten from us so far anyway, our 800 number as well as our website. So you'll be able to access those services quite easily. Um, and um, so, um, so the practical and financial services are very important to people, especially right now, of course. We do have um, basic uh, financial assistance for people with, um, with transportation and, and uh, home care and child care. But we also do provide, um, we have a copay foundation, which does help to pay for medication, so that's important to know. And we also have um, a COVID-19 program that's a bit, that also will help with other items um, in addition to medical things, like food and uh, utilities and things like that. So that's a program that's also available. So when you call our number or visit our website, um, you'd be able to um, identify what your needs are. The financial assistance programs are available to people in the United States only. All the other services are available to you um, wherever you may be. So we also do offer the chance to just talk to one of our social workers. You can join either a telephone or online support groups. And those groups are um, cover all different types of cancer. They also apply to all different age groups. So from young adults, to middle-aged adults, to older adults, to caregivers, to partners, um, to spouses. Um, so every relationship you can imagine, and to people themselves living with cancer, there's a group for someone there that we have for you. Um, and so that's another resource that you can um, access. In addition, we do have what we call a Cancer Care for Kids program in which we help adults talk to children about their experience with cancer. It's really important. Um, many people have a very hard time 
talking to their children about, about cancer. So that's a very important resource that we do offer. And um, we also have inaugurated a pet program. This is a program to help people who have a pet, a dog, cat, pet, that actually they need help with because of their cancer in providing that pet support. For example, just someone to take, if it's a dog, to take the dog for a walk. There isn't anyone that can do that for them. So it's a really nice program. It's new, and it's uh, many people find it's very, very helpful. Um, and then we also, um, I just want to say a few words about the social distancing. I think that in general when a person has cancer, sometimes one does feel a bit more isolated. One feels a bit more um, so distant from perhaps friends and family. And, of course, with social distancing, it's highlighted. So many people will contact us to talk about how they're coping with this and what they're doing. And I realize that social distancing is different in different parts of the country. Indeed, in some parts of the country, things are opening up. In other parts, it isn't. And so I think that, nevertheless, it's, a cons- it's, it's something that we hear about. And, indeed, it is important to have a place to talk to your healthcare team or as a good resource, but you also can talk with our oncology social workers. So with that being said, we now do have time for questions. And I'm going to ask Norman to explain to you how to cure for questions. We're going to try to take as many questions as possible, and Norma's going to bring all of our speakers on board so we can be sure to address your questions. Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking So we have a question from one of our online uh, participants. Um, can liver cancer be found early? Uh, Dr. Kasab, could you address that to begin with? Sure. So, uh, so that's a major challenge here because, unfortunately, a lot of patients don't even know they have any underlying liver disease. So unless the patient knows that he or she um, um, uh, have a history of um, hepatitis C, for example, or hepatitis B, and you have been following with a hepatologist or liver specialist on a regular basis, um, no one would be able to um, figure out that they are at risk for liver cancer. For example, the fatty liver population we talked about, there is another uh, category called metabolic syndrome. So these are the patients with history of any three of the following high blood pressure, um, diabetes, um, um, the cholesterol, two of them, low HDL, um, high LDL, and then also central, uh, central obesity. So uh, those patients are at uh, also high risk for fatty liver and then eventually scarring tissue in their liver, and there is no current guideline. Um, to uh, screen them. So early diagnosis is basically linked to screening. So for example, breast cancer, um, ladies get annual mammogram to get screened for it, and so on and so forth. Every cancer has got some screening um, uh, strategy. For liver cancer, the only screening strategy is for those patients with established liver disease, such as scarring tissue, nodes, um, cirrhosis, or hepatitis C or B. So I would encourage, you know, um, our patients, families, and friends, if, if they are not sure or they, or they think they are at risk or they have this metabolic syndrome picture, to seek medical advice, and they could be candidates for screening, which is basically uh, liver ultrasound um, every six months with um, sewer marker alpha fetoprotein. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Harding. Are there any new developments with immunotherapy when treating liver cancer? Uh, so that's a great question. And I would think that, um, you know, for liver cancer right now, the real focus on treatment as well as research is immunotherapy. How do we wake up the immune system to have it uh, treat um, a liver cancer? And so, uh, the major development, um, you know, I think uh, clinically uh, was the results of the IM Brave 150 data, which is the uh, study of atezolizumab, which is an anti-PD-1 antibody, plus the um, uh, uh, drug bevacizumab, an antibody to VEGF, 
uh, versus serafinib. This study demonstrated that, you know, people, you know, live longer, had disease control for longer, had greater chance of having this tumor shrink, uh, uh, then when treated with an older drug called serafinib, uh, and, and that I think was a major, uh, breakthrough for, uh, the systemic treatment of, of liver cancer. But I would say, as noted, there are so many other immune modulating drugs that, um, are, are now being tested in phase three and we look forward to see those results. Um, I think research, uh, is very heavily focused on why is it that a patient may respond to immunotherapy uh, versus not, and, and that may have to do with genetic factors of the tumor, uh, factors specific to the patient, and uh, this is where these um, non-therapeutic clinical trials really come into play, uh, where patients grateful, you know, thankfully uh, will, you know, uh, donate either some of their time or uh, extra tissue material so that we can understand these things. But I, I would forecast that over the next few years, we're really going to be talking about immune therapies and how to make our immune system respond better against the liver cancer. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Kassab. If I have fatty liver disease, am I at increased risk for developing liver cancer in the future? So all depends on the uh, progression of the fatty liver disease. So early intervention with um, healthy diet and exercise can really um, help the liver mobilize fat. And also, if there is concomitant um, high cholesterol treatment with anti-cholesterol is very uh, effective. So I would say aggressive measures early on can lower the risk. Fatty liver per se is not a known risk factor. However, if left untreated, it could lead to scarring tissue, eventually cirrhosis, and that is a known risk factor. Thank you. Um, and then uh, for Dr. Harding, is surgery always the preferred treatment for liver cancer? Uh, that's a great question, um, and so um, uh, surgery is a potential treatment for liver cancer, uh, and where surgery is applied is usually uh, in patients that have very earlier stage liver cancer uh, without cirrhosis and, and could potentially benefit from a curative uh, hepatectomy or removing part of the liver, uh, and so um, uh, you know, that is one potential treatment option for a certain stage of disease. Uh, for patients that have a small amount of liver cancer but cirrhosis, so cirrhosis is scarring of the liver, and when that happens, um, you, you can't really safely remove a portion of the liver. Uh, and in that case, this is where transplant may be a, a therapeutic option. Uh, and then and finally, for patients that, I, you know, have small amounts of disease but are not a candidate for surgery or transplant, one could consider a smaller procedure called ablation. Uh, but I guess the point is, is that, yes, surgery is used as a treatment for liver cancer, but it really depends on what the clinical scenario is and what the purpose of the surgery is. And that requires really a multidisciplinary review where you have an experienced hepatobiliary surgeon, radiologist, interventional radiologist, medical oncologist, hepatologist review the case and give a recommendation in that setting. Excellent. So that's really all that thought that goes into it so people understand that it's not just one person making that decision. It's a multidisciplinary team, as you've described. Um, Dr. Hardy, thank you. Um, and then a question from Ms. Bearden. Um, so what diet should I follow before and after I surgically remove my tumors? Or maybe just a healthy diet, what the diet would be, yes. Yeah, thanks, Carolyn. Um, so <clears throat> throughout cancer, liver, treatment for liver cancer, um, you want to ensure that you're getting enough calories and protein. And so preoperatively is going to depend on your symptoms and side effects. Talking with your healthcare team about that. Um, there may be some things unique to you that maybe they want to increase and some things they don't want to, they want to have you have less of. Post-operatively, 
kind of generally speaking, we want to get protein in. We want to make sure that the calories are, are in because the healing of the liver is going to be happening. And um, it's pretty rapid the way that the liver heals itself. And so having adequate protein um, after surgery is very important. So oftentimes you might hear someone describe it as a high-protein diet. Um, again, talk with your dietitian about your specific calorie and protein goals. Um, sometimes folks who are undergoing treatment for liver um, disease have some other components that they're also monitoring, such as sodium or fluid or something like that. And so you want to ensure that you have the best plan for your unique needs. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and then um, there's a question for Dr. Harding about um, really the new, uh, this question comes up, um, so what's new in liver cancer research? I know we talked about that even before the program started, um, but if you could go over just the, um, the role of immunotherapies and sequencing and I'll leave that to you, but actually if you could go through um, some of what is new. Eva, you've discussed it already, but I think everyone wants to hear that more and more. I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, so, um, you know, in terms of, um, so if we think mostly on systemic therapy, uh, this has really been where many of these advances have occurred. So prior to 2017, there was really only one FDA-approved drug, and that was the multi-tyrosine uh, uh, kinase inhibitor, serafinib. Now, now in the current age, we have many uh, FDA-approved drugs. So for patients that have never gotten a systemic therapy, as Dr. Chatham said, there is another tyrosine kinase inhibitor called lenvacinib, which is now FDA-approved. Uh, there is... Um, not FDA-approved at this time, uh, but certainly will be reviewed is the immunotherapy atezolizumab, which is an anti-PD-1 antibody, with the um, antibody to VEGF bevacizumab. This has been approved. And, and really that, um, I, I'm sorry, that has been um, evaluated and is waiting to be reviewed. But many of us think that is an important announced standard of care. Uh, and so um, that's what's new in what's called the front line. In the second line, uh, there are two tyrosine kinase inhibitors that have been approved, cabozacinib and regorafenib. Uh There has been an antibody to something called VEGFR2, that's ramasurumab. That has been approved in uh, what's called an ASP-high subset. Uh, and then there have been uh, approvals of single-agent immunotherapy, namely nivolumab, uh, and pembrolizumab, these are anti-PDL1 antibodies. And more recently, there's been conditional approval of the combination of nivolumab, uh, a, a PDL1 antibody, uh, with, uh, 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 ipilimumab, an anti-PDL4 antibody. And really, these approvals and, and accelerated approvals just highlight how important it is to treat liver cancer by blocking um, receptors that are important for recruitment of blood vessels, uh, uh, that's the VEGF, as well as blocking blocking proteins that basically prevent the immune system from seeing cancer. So uh, PD-1 program death receptor 1, this is on T cells and, you know, um, cancer cells and the environment of the cancer cells interact with these T cells and tells them basically, try not, don't see me, right? These antibodies wake that T cell up, allow it to attack. And there are a number of different ways that can occur. Uh, these are called immune checkpoint molecules. Um, and we, the Nobel Prize for Medicine went to, uh, uh, to this identification. James Allison at, at MD Anderson now was also at MSK. Uh, uh, really unlocked an important field, and that's where the research, I think, is focusing on how do we uh, interface with those molecules and how can we make uh, 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 the immune system work better. And, and, and Dr. Tessev also could comment as well, uh, as he's very interested in this, too. Dr. Kersop, would you like to comment as well? Yes, yeah, so Dr. Harding 
said, this is really um, an exciting time for our patients and, um, and uh, treating physicians who are also very excited to have expanded um, options for our patients. And immunotherapy has really been a game changer for our liver cancer patients here. In the past couple of years, we um, had three drugs approved in terms of immunotherapy, and we had uh, two more approved last month, Dr. Harding alluded to. So it's really um, exploding before our eyes, we feel, uh, with immunotherapy options. And now our job as uh, investigators and treating physicians is to um, see which, you know, trial would be um, best for our um, patient at a specific time. So it's not as simple as, you know, starting it for all patients. We really have to pick and choose for those patients who would benefit from a specific trial setting. However, we have standard of care options available now for patients with um, metastatic disease. So that's excellent to hear. Oh, this is a really, um, on this note, this is really, um, so I'm going to ask our speakers now as we conclude if they just would like to add any um, takeaways from today's program. So do you want to start, Dr. Kassab? Yeah, so uh, I always, you know, uh, take the advantage of those opportunities to tell our patients and their families that there is always hope and you really have to um, discuss with your physician in terms of new approaches, sign up for any clinical trial because there is always more hope with new drugs available. Uh, discuss the pros and cons of each approach and even if you have metastatic disease and you start systemic therapy, I've seen patients on systemic therapy for years. So you really have to have your, your hopes up and my um, usual sentence to my patients is let's have our hopes up and it's live like we're going to live forever, but we have to also get prepared for the worst case scenario. So hope for the best, but get ready for the worst. Thank you. And Dr. Harding? Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, um, I, I think that, um, you know, with all of the advances in the last five to ten years in liver cancer, um, it's um, a, a really a great time for patients that they have more treatment options, and it's a great time uh, because there's intense, you know, interest in developing new and better therapies. Uh, so uh, seeing the field evolve has really, you know, put more, I think, optimism uh, and more uh, of a focus on research and improvement, and, 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 and I think that that's really been notable over the course of, of even my career and watching how we're able to treat patients better and for longer with less side effects uh, and, you know, hopefully get some uh, to cure uh, and, um, if not, at least uh, to a high quality of life um, and uh, disease control. Thank you. And Ms. Burden, do you want to add anything as well? Just briefly say, um, you know, connect with your healthcare team, all members of your healthcare team. Um, don't try to research and find information on your own. It's very confusing and overwhelming sometimes. And that's why your healthcare team is there, is to answer those questions that you have and give you the most current and safe information. Um, and I would say just, again, like whatever the other, uh, all of our other speakers have said, stay positive and, um, and just one day at a time. Excellent. Excellent. And, um, and I also uh, just want to wrap up by saying also do take advantage of all the services that are out there for you, um, both from your healthcare team um, and, of course, from um, your healthcare team, of course, are the people who know you the best. I want to thank our speakers. This has been a phenomenal call. I think we've done programs on liver cancer before, but this one seems to be presenting a great deal more of new information than before, and I want to thank all of our speakers for bringing that information to all of you. Um, as we wrap up, I know there are many more questions in queue. Um, so, and also some of you asked questions, but I want you all to take the information you learned today and take it back to your treating healthcare team. They know the most about you. They know, of course, everything about you, so go to your healthcare team. But also, um, I also want you to take advantage of all the services that are available to you 
a cancer care, those free support services, support services that can help you with some of the practical, financial, um, emotional, social issues that you may be dealing with um, in, in today's world. And I also, we will also link you to other organizations. There are many other organizations that partner with us. There are liver cancer specific organizations that we'll link you with as well. We want you to have access to the best care possible and the best support. Support really is very important. And I do want to um, say something about the fact that um, in the world we live in right now, um, there has been a, certainly a recent emphasis on social distancing. I know it's different for different parts of the country and world, but to some extent, people often do feel a bit alone, more alone than usual. It's normal to feel alone. Of course, you have cancer. You have liver cancer, any type of cancer. But now people may feel a bit more so, and so we want you to take advantage of these organizations that are simply a phone call away or a, a click on your a mouse, mouse click away on your computer to actually access these really wonderful resources for yourself. So that's another thing we want you to take advantage of. Um, and um, also, in terms of your healthcare team, there is no question that you can't ask them from both in terms of your medical details. That's really important. Um, you have many of you are having telehealth visits with your healthcare team, but you also can ask about practical and financial questions with them because many of you at the institutions you go to have resources for you or will connect you to those resources. So most importantly, as we conclude today, we don't want any one of you to feel alone. Much of you know that you're connected to a lot of organizations out there. You also know that there are lots of people in the world who are dealing with liver cancer, and that you also have heard about all of the research that's going on as well. So I want to very much thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you, each and every one of you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.